Well, that is not the only oddity when it comes to our worship this morning. Uh, we come to the end of a 18-month series we've had through John's Gospel. And this sermon doesn't fit the pattern that most of them preached here do. More, more often than not, we are preaching word by word or verse by verse or at least passage by passage through a, a part of the Bible. But this morning, we are going to preach through an entire book. So feel free to pray for the preacher as we go along, along the way here. Um, and since that will be a little different, just realize the sermon will be structured a little differently. And uh, just a word for those of you who like to take detailed notes, I'm going to have a lot more cross-references than I usually would. And so if you're the type that feels like you have to write down every verse that I say, um, let your heart not be troubled or let it be dismayed. Uh, the most important ones will be up on the, the screen behind me. Uh, the other ones I'll say verbally. But then midweek, they'll be in the e-news. I will actually send out my outline, including every list I give and every verse that I cite. So if you miss one, it's okay. Don't worry. We'll, we'll be with us. All right. Uh, well, let's begin this last sermon in this series with a word of prayer. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for this season we have had being able to study John's gospel. Thank you for how we have expanded our view of you. And in so doing, expanded our worship of you. Would you help us this morning to hear John loud and clear in our hearts? Would you allow us to know that you are the Messiah, the Son of God? Would you allow us to believe in you and by believing to have life in your name? We pray these things in your mighty name. Amen. If you haven't noticed, winter is in fact here. It took a little while, but it's cold outside. Uh, it feels like a long time ago. It wasn't that long. It's only about three months or so, but Precious and I were in a place with very different weather, uh, a place called Kunming, China. It's uh, called the Land of Eternal Spring. Uh, they call it that because it's about 70 degrees year round. It's okay to be jealous of them. It's just always good weather. And uh, the Kunming's about as high elevated as Colorado. It's about as far south as Dallas, Texas. It's, it's, just, it's just nice. So it's like a resort town in China. Well, we had reason to be there. We had some friends we were visiting. And, and they showed us around this city, which so much of it is new. They have new highways, new skyscrapers, new places to eat and spend your money, new malls. It, it just feels like you're in a new city. Uh, but every, every so often, you get a glimpse of the old Kunming. You, you turn down a street, and it's not paved anymore. You're on a dirt road. You might see someone pulling a cart with an oxen. There's older buildings in certain parts of town. Our friends made sure to show us around so we saw both old and new Kunming. But they told us if we really wanted to know Kunming, we needed to go up. So there's this hillside that you can take one of those trolley cars up. And uh, if you don't like heights or not the faint of heart, uh, this is not the ride for you. But if you're brave enough to do it, you can go up the side of the mountaintop. And from there, you can overlook the city. And it's true. A, a higher perspective absolutely gives you a better understanding of a city. Uh, from up there, you could see old and new Kunming very clearly. I also noticed all these giant lakes. I was like, how did I miss those? Turns out they were right there all along. I just couldn't get my eyes up high enough to see them. Well, that's certainly true of visiting a city. A higher perspective will allow you to notice things you wouldn't otherwise. It's also true of works of art. Sometimes you just got to take a step back to take in the whole of something you're looking at. 
Well, it's certainly true of books. And a beautiful book that we've been studying for a year and a half, John's Gospel, is no exception. It had an exquisite writer, John, and even more exquisite spirit inspiring him to write this. And in so doing, he wrote a book with so many layers of depth to it that you could spend a lifetime on it. It's been rightfully said that John's gospel is deep enough to drown an elephant and shallow enough for a child to play in safely. You can understand the main point in about 30 seconds, and you can spend a lifetime plumbing the depths of the beauty of Jesus presented within it. Well, I hope as we study the, this book that you have found some of those things yourself. But as we come to this overview sermon, you know, there's lots of different ways we could go about it. Uh, we could use the structure of the book. And that's not too complicated. There's a, an introduction in chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. It introduces almost every major theme in the book. Then there's a, uh, sometimes that's called the prologue. Then there's a recap or a, an epilogue at the very end, chapter 20 showing us Jesus and his disciples after the resurrection. In between are two main books, one a book of signs. It's uh, chapter 1, the 19 through the end of 11. That's centered around these major signs Jesus does or miracles to reveal who he is as Messiah. And then chap- the second book, the book of glory, that's chapters 12 through 20. It's almost all spent in the preparation and crucifixion of Jesus. It all takes place in just a couple weeks' time. And we could move through the book that way, but I think John has actually tipped his hand the way he would intend for us to do so through two verses that are often called the purpose statement of the book. John 20, verses 30 through 31. John 20, 30 through 31. I'll read these two verses, and we'll use it as a roadmap of sorts this morning for walking through this wonderful gospel. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We'll use this purpose statement to walk through three main things that John intends for us to know. Three things that will change us from the inside out. Those three things are as follows. First, answering the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? According to John, he is the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah. Second, we'll answer, why should we believe it? Why should we believe in this Jesus? John's answer is because these are written, these signs that were given and recorded by John for us that Jesus did. And then finally, we'll ask, what difference does it make? What in the world does it change whether this is true or not or whether I believe in Jesus or not? And John's answer is it's only the difference between eternal life and not. Three things we will find from the whole book of John that will change our life forever. Let's begin in that, with that first question, who is Jesus? Now realize this question explicitly gets asked multiple times in John's gospel. One example is in John 7, 25 through 26. Jesus was at a festival and the crowd started wondering, 
maybe this guy is in fact the Messiah. Verse 25, he said, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Could this be him? Now to understand the significance of that question, you have to understand that word Christ means. Uh, it's not an un uh, uncommon mistake for people to assume that Jesus Christ is a name, that Jesus is the first name, Christ is the last name. But Christ is not a name, Christ is a title. It is a, a anointed one or Messiah, God's chosen one. And in Jesus' day, there was an expectation that the Messiah would come from God and do certain things. People assumed that he would be a military political leader, certainly sent by God, maybe doing some miracles, but his main mission would be to overthrow the Romans and get Israel back on top. Now, with that in mind, you can understand why, at least initially, it seems like people are excited to see this miracle worker, Jesus. They're thinking maybe this is the Messiah. Chapters 1 through 4, Jesus is generally received with open arms. John the Baptist declares, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, and his, some of his disciples go and follow him. He does a, a miracle at a, a wedding in Cana, and he turns water to wine, and people are excited. They love the miracle he does. In chapter 4, a whole city full of Samaritans, they all embrace him, and they say, this must be the guy. You can feel the excitement building. That is until Jesus starts to more clearly say what sort of Messiah he's going to be. Once people realize he's not the Messiah they expect, they begin to reject. And pretty soon we see that Jesus will not be received by those he was sent to. Chapter 5, that shift happens. After Jesus had done a miracle on the Sabbath, and had been questioned about it, and given his rationale why it was appropriate for him to do so, in verse 18, we see the rejection that begins here with the religious leaders that will one day result in him being tacked up on a cross. John 5, 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Those who should have known who he was most are the first to reject him. But realize they're not the only ones to reject him. No, we also see the crowds generally start to turn on Jesus when they were welcoming him with open arms just a moment before. If you go to chapter 6, Jesus had just done that miracle feeding the 5,000, probably about 15 or 20,000 when you count women and children in addition to the men. The equivalent of feeding a whole stadium of people with a can of tuna and some Cheetos. An amazing miracle Jesus does, right? Everyone's lapping it up. And then in verse 15, he's, it said that they wanted to go and make him king. They said, this must be the guy. But Jesus wouldn't let him. He backed off. And then after explaining a little more about who he was, we see once again he is rejected. John 6, verse 60 through 63. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? 
Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Then jumping down to verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. No, it wasn't just the religious leaders that were going to be disappointed and one day reject Jesus. No, the crowds too would turn on him. And in fact, the crowds would themselves shout for him to be crucified. Now, what is it about Jesus that so disappointed these crowds and the religious leaders and one day would lead to them essentially making sure that he is murdered as a criminal? Well, to understand that, friend, you have to understand what sort of Messiah Jesus claimed to be. Now, we could spend an entire sermon teasing just that out, but there's at least three very significant titles that Jesus uses to refer to himself regularly in John's gospel. And those three titles get to the crux of much of what uh, the people reject him for. Now, those titles are all related to his unique relationship with the Father in heaven. The unique relationship Jesus claims to have that draws these people to hate him and reject him. Those three titles are Son of Man, Son of God, and the Son. Now, there's shades of meaning to each of them. If we had time, we could tease it out. The unique thread going through all of them is that Jesus is claiming a unique relationship with the Father, and that unique relationship is what causes his rejection and hatred from those who hear him. There's at least five unique things that Jesus claims in his sonship. Five things, and helpfully, they're all found uh, all three of those uh, uh, names that Jesus has are found in three verses in John 5. John 5, 25 through 27. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. There's your first one. And those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son. There's your second one. Also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. There's your third one. Well, to summarize, if you follow these threads through all of John's gospel, five unique claims he makes that cause the crowds and the religious leaders to reject him. First, he claims the unique ability to work on behalf of the father. As the son, he sees the father working and he has the ability uniquely to do the same things he sees his father doing. You can see that in chapter 5 and verse 20. Second, he claims the unique ability, unique authority to judge mankind. As the father is the judge of all, well, he has entrusted to the son the judgment of everyone. Chapter 5, verse 22. He claims the unique authority to raise the dead to call people out from the grave and back to life. Chapter 5 and verse 25. He claims the unique authority to give eternal life. To give eternal life. Chapter 6, verses 53 through 54. He even claims the unique authority to reveal the Father in heaven to anyone he chooses. Chapter 8, 28 through 29. It is the uniqueness of the relationship that Jesus claims he has with his father that he comes back to again and again in John's gospel and results in his rejection by those who should have received him. Now, as high as those claims are, 
there is still one step higher that Jesus asks us to go. One set of claims that if there were any doubt in the minds of those who opposed him, whether or not he had overstepped, this removes all doubt. That is, Jesus claims the very name of God for himself. In John's gospel, a very prominent theme is Jesus' I am statements. If you were reading the Old Testament in a Greek translation, like many people would have been back in those days, if you went back to, through the prophets and, and back through certain other parts of the Old Testament, like in Exodus, when God is referred to, one name that he is given is I am, or ego eimi in Greek. Now, Jesus knows well that many people would have uh, knew that name, and he claims that name for himself, and thereby claims divinity, claims to be God. Now, there's a, a number of different area, uh, uh, spots he does this along the way. I, uh, you can jot them down as I go through. In John 6, he says, I am the bread of life. In John 8, he says, I am the light of the world. In John 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. Again, in John 10, he says, I am the door the sheep go through. In John 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. In John 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Then in John 15, he says, I am the true vine. And friend, if there were any doubt what Jesus is doing with this formulation, John 8 removes the doubt. John 8, 58. If you're ever wondering what Jesus is doing, just look at the way people react to him. Look at John 8, 58. Same formulation. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And what's the result? Verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. John's gospel reveals to us a mystery a mystery that theologians have spent countless tomes in lifetimes trying to search for words to explain. The mystery of the eternal Godhead, of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit living forever in a perfect harmony, a community of love, distinct, not confused with each other, and yet sharing in Godhood, sharing in essence. So there's truly one God in three persons. Jesus is the eternal son come down into the wor world. As uh, the prologue says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus can take the name of Yahweh on himself, of God, because he truly is the eternal son, God himself come to walk down among us. So who is Jesus? Well, he is the Messiah, the son from heaven, but not the Messiah that anyone was expecting. And yet, you can't really know who someone is fully unless you know what they're about. Unless you know their purpose, what they are most interested in. And so, while it's one thing to say Jesus is the Messiah, unless you know what his mission was in this world, you can't really know him. So before we move on from this first point, we need to ask, what was it that Jesus came to do? Now, John's Gospel has plenty of examples where Jesus teaches people 
long sections where he's going back and forth, teaching religious leaders and crowds and even his disciples. He certainly exposes hypocrisy among the religious plenty of times along the way. He does lots of miracles. We'll get to the signs in just a, a little bit. But if you were to ask, what was he specifically here for? What's at the heart of it? Well, he's here on a rescue mission for sinners. John 3, 16 and 17, very well-known section of the Bible for, for good reason. In it, you get this encapsulation of Jesus, the sent Messiah, and what he's here to do. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Catch beginning of 17, the son being sent into the world. What was he here for? To save. Save us from what? From the condemnation that our sins brought upon us, that's already on us. That's who Jesus is. How does he accomplish his mission? Well, well, friend, in a word, by his cross. So much of the second book in John's gospel, chapters 12 through 20, is made up with preparation and then the actual crucifixion of Jesus. One of the themes running through it is that Jesus is being set aside to be both the sacrificial lamb and the priest who does this ministry for the people to cover over the sins of God's people. Jesus himself tells us that this is what he came for in John 12, 27. John 12, 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. You see, friends, you cannot understand what sort of Messiah Jesus is until you understand that he was born to die, that he came on a rescue mission for sinners, and that he gave up his life as a substitute willingly giving his perfect life for our failed ones. The glory of Jesus is seen in this, and the glory of God is seen in this, that he would give his own son as an act of mercy and to fulfill all righteousness. So that's who Jesus is. He is the Messiah, not the one that they were expecting, but the one that God had intended all along, the one that would come to rescue sinners from their sins. But that may leave a very important question for you this morning. Maybe you're saying, well, it's one thing for, to say that that's what Jesus understood himself to be. Maybe even that John understood Jesus to be that. But why should I believe it? Is there any evidence that Jesus is who he claims to be? Well, that brings us to our second point. Why should you believe it, friends? John gives us signs, miracles that Jesus did intended to reveal who he is, <clears throat> and to give you every reason to believe. The first book is built around these signs, chapter uh, 1 through the end of 11. There are seven of them. And realize Jesus didn't do miracles just to attract crowds. Now, now at several points along the way, he actually rebukes people for demanding miracles and signs from him. 
No, but every miracle he did do had an intention behind it. There's a message behind the miracle. There's a significance to the sign. And those signs give us all the proof we should ever need that Jesus is who he claims to be. Back in chapter 2, at that wedding in Cana, Jesus turned water to wine. It wasn't just because they ran out of party favors. Now, Jesus did that to show that God's promised time of prosperity and blessing for his people was, was finally here. The fulfillment of the prophet's promise that the hills would drip with wine. Or the, in chapter 4, he heals a official's son. He does so with just a word. It showed to show that he has authority both over Jew and Gentile in our body, that Jesus has the greatest authority of all because he is the Messiah sent from God. Then in chapter 5, he heals a paralyzed man. It's to show that God's time of restoring and healing his people is here. In chapter 6, that feeding of the 5,000, it was to show that life that we need is to be drawn from Jesus that he is the food we must ingest spiritually to have life. In chapter 6, he walked on water to show that Israel's God, who will bring peace from heaven to a chaotic world, is here. In chapter 9, he restored sight to a man who was born blind. It was to show us that he can heal us of our spiritual blindness, that we can actually know God through him. And then in chapter 11, Jesus raised a man that had been dead a long time, Lazarus. He raised him back to life to show he had power over the grave and, yes, even death. Jesus gave those who had eyes to see in his day every reason to believe. That's what the the first book mostly shows But there's one more very significant sign Jesus does in John's gospel that I think speaks to us most powerfully today. And that comes from the second book. See, that second book takes place only over a couple weeks' time. It's mostly Jesus and his disciples in the upper room, but it builds and it builds and it builds until Jesus actually goes to the cross. And then in chapter 20, after he's been dead three days, he rises from the grave back to life just the way he predicted he would. And in so doing, his empty tomb gives us a reason to believe. Friend, maybe you're here this morning and you've been checking out Christianity through this series, through John's gospel. I I hope you've learned something about the Bible. I certainly hope you've learned something about Jesus. But friend, I, I hope you've taken the time to seriously consider If Jesus really rose from the dead, if what we have written in this Bible is true, friend, there are implications for your life. He's given you every reason to believe. The question is, friend, will you believe? Will you trust him? Well, maybe you're asking, why should I? What difference does it make? I mean, sure, I can know these things. I can know the evidence that John has given us here in his gospel, but Really, what difference does it make in my life? Well, that brings us to our third and final point. What difference does it make? John told us that these were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, 
the Son of God, and that by believing you might find life in his name. Friend, it's only the difference between fullness of life now and eternal life with Jesus later or spiritual death. You could summarize the way John lays this out for us in a few steps here. First, it's that we all need life from outside us. We all need life from outside us. Jesus taught that when he was uh, teaching the crowd after uh, uh, feeding the 5,000. He, he taught that by saying he's the bread of life. And then he returned to that theme in John 15, verse 5. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I am him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Jesus, through John's writings, tells us that we are not okay on our own. We don't just need a little more self-confidence or self-reflection. No, what we need is life flowing into us from a source, and that source is Jesus. Without it, we are surely dead. We are lost. We are condemned, to use the words of John 3. The wrath of God is on us for our sins, and we'll never find our way back to God. We'll never have eternal life. But there's a second important truth. While we need life, we can find that life through faith in Jesus. We can find that life we so desperately need through faith in Jesus. In chapter 6, verse 28, Jesus, this is what John wrote. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Friend, if you want to know how it is that you can be made right with God, how it is that you can have that relationship with God that you know deep down you need, how it is your sins can be forgiven, the answer, according to John and according to the Bible, is you must believe. You must believe. Now, by believing, John doesn't mean just mentally assenting to a series of facts. It's not like a mathematical equation. It's also not just a, a warm feeling inside that has no basis or no logic to it, something that is so personal no one can question. No, when, when belief and faith is used in John, it's connected to receiving and relationship with Jesus. You can see that in John 1, verses 11 through 12, John 1, 11 through 12. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But who, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So, friend, how is it that you find the life you so desperately need? By believing in Jesus. Another stand-in for believing, you could say, by trusting him. By welcoming him into your life as Lord and Master, by declaring he is the Lord. I have no hope unless Jesus died for my sins, and that is true. Friend, if you do that, then something amazing will happen. Your life, your life will change forever. How will it change? Well, at least three things will happen. First, you will get abundant life, abundant life right now. You will get abundant life right now. 
In John 15, 11, Jesus told his disciples, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. See, friends, Jesus did not come to ruin our party to give us the worst, saddest, least enjoyable sort of life. No, Jesus came to redefine what true joy is, to give us joy from the inside out, irrespective of our circumstances, joy that sustains us because it flows from Jesus himself. It's a joy that only comes from knowing God and being known by him. That's what he said in John 17, 3. This is eternal life that they know you, God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. When you believe in Jesus, you get that abundant life in you right now. That's not all you get. You also get eternal life later. You get eternal life later. Back in John 5, Jesus was making that claim of unique authority. And he spoke to what he will one day do for all those who are in the grave. John 5, verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. See, friend, Jesus tells us that if we believe him, we will have eternal life. That means your last day is not the day you die, that there is a day after you're dying, a day that all who pass through this world into death will one day experience, where they will hear the voice of this Jesus. This Jesus will call them back to life. Those who know him we'll find that to be the joy, most joyous of all days. A new body, a new world to enjoy with him forever, their joy full. Those who don't know him will find that a day of everlasting sorrow. Friend, if you're a Christian, you don't have to fear death because you have eternal life through Jesus. It's the third thing that'll happen you will get to love other Christians. You will get to love other Christians. So much of what Jesus taught his disciples in the upper room turned on this idea. He was empowering them to be his witnesses and showing them what sort of loving community they were supposed to have. He said it both in John 13 and John 15. They are to love one another as Jesus loved them. And friends, as they got that command from Jesus, there's a link going back to all true believers to, that comes to us today that if we have received Jesus by faith, we too get to love each other the way Jesus has in fact loved us. That is what the church is meant to be. A group of rescued sinners that experiences the love that started in heaven from the eternal trinity spilling over into this world. It's invaded their hearts and now it spills over in their relationships to other Christians. We get so much. And all Jesus asks us to do is believe. Believe he is the son sent from heaven. Believe he was the sacrifice for sins. 
believe that what he promises, that we will be free from our sins, we will be free indeed. And to believe that our joy is full in him. Friends, as we come to the end of this series through John's gospel, there are so many different ways we could apply what we've learned. I don't have all day, so I'm going to condense down to the four that seemed most important to me. Four things that I hope you will take from this series. Four ways it will change the way you live with Jesus in this world. First, I hope you will hold on to the life that you found with Jesus. You'll hold on to the life that you found with Jesus. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you haven't been a Christian for a long time. Maybe this was your first time studying John's gospel in a deep way. If so, it may feel overwhelming, friend. I hope you have. Uh, <clears throat> I hope you would hear that it's okay to not understand everything, but to hold on to what you can, whatever you have learned, whatever you've seen of Jesus, to to treasure it in your heart. All right, maybe you're here this morning and. You're not yet a Christian, and yet you've been exposed to things in John's gospel through this series that you feel like you know a little more about him. Friend, I, I want to invite you to continue your journey, and I want to invite you to believe as John desired you to. Now, there's many other things the Bible says about Jesus, but what John has put in front of you is enough for you to truly know Jesus in a way that will bring you eternal life. If you don't know what that means or you have questions, certainly come talk with me after the service. But friend, I hope you will keep seeking the Jesus that John presents to us, that you will lay hold of the life that he held out. Now, to all of us who have been Christians for a long time, maybe you've studied John's gospel for decades and dec decades. This has felt like you've uh, known this well and you've loved it because it's so familiar. I hope you'd take the time to make sure that you cement in your heart some of the things that you've learned along the way. Uh, this week I asked many of you what thing it was that God had taught you through our series through John. I asked uh, a wide variety of people in our congregation, and I was so encouraged by some of the answers I got. Uh, one of you showed me a long list of verses from John's gospel that you had memorized, and even spent several minutes quoting them to me from memory. That was encouraging and a little bit convicting. Well done. <laughs> Another of you told me that there was a uh, this fresh understanding of how Jesus had these personal encounters with people, even people that were hurting and on the margins, and even his enemy in Judas, and that touched you in a special way. Uh, for myself, I was struck by Jesus' sense of perfect timing, how there was a specific hour for everything that he did leading up to the hour of his death on the cross. How nothing happened by accident. All of it was according to his father's plan. Now, whatever it is God's laid upon your heart, I hope you have some way to try and capture that, whether it's memorizing verses or maybe you keep a, a journal of some sorts, jotting down your highlights from John's gospel, or, or maybe you're a sticky note type person, just sticky note all over the place. Whatever you found in John's gospel, find some way to hold on to it. Second, live out the joy that you found with Jesus. Live out the joy that you've found with Jesus. 
I hope that as you've been studying this, it hasn't just been something you enjoyed because you like expositional sermons or you like hearing familiar old books. I hope your heart has actually been enlarging. I hope each time you've had your spiritual eyes put on Jesus, that your capacity to love him and enjoy him has grown. Now, friend, uh, let me encourage you that if that joy is happening in your heart, it is meant to be seen and to be shown. Maybe ask yourself over lunch today, how would people know that my joy is full in Jesus? Would it be by seeing my face on Monday morning? Would it be by the way I drive? Would it be by the way I talk to my kids? Live out the joy you have in Jesus. Live it out of the way people can see, friends. Third, lean into the love for other believers. Lean into the love for other believers. Jesus gave this to his disciples as a priority before he went to the cross, before he was resurrected, before his ascension, and it's still a priority for us today. You know, there's many different ways that you can cultivate fellowship and deep relationships with other believers. Let me encourage you as a response to the word preached from John to take a step toward other believers as you're able. Uh, maybe you've been visiting with us here at Castleton for a time. I, I hope you feel welcome. Let me encourage you toward what's happening right after our service. Downstairs in the gym, we're going to have an open house with a whole bunch of small groups. That's one way for you to get in close community with other believers, to have an opportunity to love them and be loved by them, to get close. It's one way you could lean into the body of Christ. Uh, uh, another one would be to use your gifts in the body of Christ. I am so encouraged by how many of you have been serving, even sacrificially serving for a long time here at our church. But if you are not yet engaged serving at the church that you call home, friend, you are missing out on an opportunity to bless the body with the gifts he's given you as a part of that body. We have great needs when it comes to service. Last week, we actually had to turn away some kids from children's ministry because we just didn't have enough staffing to pull it off. So if you're not yet at the point where you're engaged serving, but you maybe feel as if God is calling you toward to lean into your love for other believers. Maybe you take a, a step in serving this week. Maybe it's some other avenue besides those, but that's at least two fruitful ways for you to consider. Third, I hope you take from John's gospel to go as you have been sent. To go as you have been sent. John makes sure that we know that this gospel is written so we might believe. But he also makes sure to show us how Jesus commissions and empowers his disciples. And friend, that same charge is on each and every one of us today. To love Jesus, to experience his joy, and then to tell others about him. To invite them to church. To ask them to read the Bible with us. To pray with them to pray for them. Friend, if we have really found eternal life in Jesus, how could we not talk about it? Brothers and sisters, there's so much that you have in Jesus. Don't hold back. Gossip about him to anyone that will listen. Tell them about the life you have in him. It's been a, a wonderful walk through John's gospel over these 18 months.
I want to end in the same place where we began. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That's because you're older, little one, answered he. Not because you are? I'm not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. That amazing artistic imagination of C.S. Lewis capturing for us what happens as we meditate on the glory of God's word every time we encounter Jesus through his pages, no matter how many times we've done it before, we see a little more of him. Not because he's actually getting bigger, but because our hearts are, because our eyes are. Brothers and sisters, I hope your wonder of Jesus has grown during this series. And I hope your worship of him will continue growing all the days he gives you in this world and off into eternity. Let's pray.